0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, we speak with a family member of the U.S. hostages released by Hamas. The latest on humanitarian aid that's begun crossing into the Gaza border. Ron Elving, on the week in which President Biden asked the American people to be the arsenal of democracy, And the Rolling Stones with a new album, they've been making music since 1962. And Keith Richards tells us.
1: I've still got my band,
0: man. You know,
1: I got a band, you know, that's lasted longer than anybody else's in the damn world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) First star newscast. Today is Saturday, October 21, 2023.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Aid trucks have crossed the Egyptian border into Gaza, bringing in needed supplies. But as NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports, the amount of aid being allowed in barely even begins to address the needs of the population there.
3: For days, aid trucks were held at the Egyptian border crossing into Gaza while negotiations took place with Israel and Egypt over what could be allowed in and who could come out of the Gaza Strip. The decision to allow in 20 trucks of aid today is seen as a major diplomatic breakthrough, but it barely begins to address the needs of the humanitarian crisis in the midst of heavy Israeli bombardment. The trucks brought in some medicine, medical equipment and foods, including baby formula, but not fuel or water, which is desperately needed. Meanwhile, hundreds of American and other foreign citizens are gathered at the border crossing trying to get out. Ruth Sherlock, NPR
2: News, Tel Aviv. Egypt is holding an international conference today to discuss the war between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. Leaders from Arab and European countries are meeting at the Cairo Peace Summit, but the U.S., Israel and Iran not expected to attend. The Biden administration praising the release of two Americans who were among some 200 people taken hostage by Hamas nearly two weeks ago. The mother and daughter now back in the care of Israeli officials. And NPR's Anna Isaacs reports that their community outside Chicago is awaiting their return.
4: Judith and Natalie Ra'anan were visiting family at a kibbutz near Israel's border with Gaza when they were kidnapped. Rabbi Dov Hillel Klein, executive director of Chabad of Evanston, said the past couple of weeks have been filled with vigils and prayer.
5: We're holding our breaths to know what type of condition they're in. We're holding our breaths until we could see them again here in Evanston
6: and which is totally ecstatic.
4: Secretary of State Antony Blinken says 10 other Americans remain unaccounted for, and at least some of them are being held hostage by Hamas, along with an estimated 200 others. Israeli leaders have said that until all hostages are released, Israel will not lift a siege that has cut off food, water, electricity, and fuel for more than 2 million Palestinians. Anna Isaacs, NPR News.
2: The U.S. Supreme Court has left in place a lower court order blocking a Missouri law that invalidates federal gun regulations. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports.
7: The Missouri law enacted in 2021 makes federal gun restrictions illegal in the state and bars officials from enforcing any law that would, quote, infringe upon the right to bear arms. It also allows any person to sue state law enforcement agencies if they don't comply with that state law. After two lower courts ruled the law unconstitutional, interfered with federal law enforcement, Missouri asked the Supreme Court to intervene. But today, the high court refused to do that, leaving the lower court decisions in place. The only noted dissenter was Justice Clarence Thomas. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington.
2: And you're listening to NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Massachusetts is again considering legislation that would legalize medical aid in dying. Democratic State Senator Joe Comerford of Northampton presented one of two related bills to a legislative committee yesterday. It would allow terminally ill patients with a life expectancy of six months or less to take medication that would end their lives. While supporters say the bill offers safeguards for patients, Sandra Kucharski, a nurse of more than 45 years, says they aren't always strong enough.
8: In my
9: work with the elderly, I know that relatives can have secondary motives because of what they stand to gain from when the patient dies. Not all caregivers are altruistic and have their loved one's best interests at heart, yet this law presumes as much.
7: If passed, Massachusetts would be the 11th state to legalize medical aid in dying. Nineteen people incarcerated at a maximum security prison have organized a hunger strike. The Boston Globe reports they submitted letters to Attorney General Andrea Campbell this week announcing the strike and requesting an investigation into one of the prison units. They say correctional officers at the Souza Baranowski Correctional Center in Lancaster repeatedly assault them and use excessive force. A Department of Corrections spokesperson declined comment on the allegations to The Globe, but did say those involved declined medical attention and did not explain the reason for their strike. Two Patriots legends will be inducted into the team's Hall of Fame today. Dante Scarnecchia won five Super Bowls as the Pats' offensive line coach and spent 34 seasons with the organization. He was handpicked by owner Robert Kraft for the honor. Mike Vrabel earned Hall of Fame recognition by winning a fan vote earlier this year. He appeared in 142 regular season and playoff games over eight years with the team. Bruins are on the road against the Kings tonight. Revolution host Philadelphia tonight. Rain today, low 60s. Rain tonight, low around 50, partly sunny tomorrow. Mid 50s and for Monday, partly sunny with a high near 60. 58 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. The first trucks carrying humanitarian aid rolled into Gaza from Egypt today. We will have more on that in a moment. Uh, but we'll begin with the 19 days House Republicans have spent debating who ought to become speaker of the House of Representatives without actually deciding on anyone. NPR senior editor Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us.
10: Good to be with you, Scott.
0: Uh, Representative Jim Jordan dropped out of the race yesterday, um, I think by popular demand. It's uh, safe to say these are all politicians. Why can't they cut a deal and get a speaker?
10: A key point here, Scott, is that House rules require the speaker to win a majority of the whole House, both parties, and the opposition almost always votes for its own nominee. So given the unity among Democrats in the present case, a Republican needs nearly every Republican vote to become speaker, and Republicans have a very slim majority. So if even a handful of their members refuse to go along with the rest, uh, they can deny the party the power to choose a speaker. So as few as eight Arch-conservatives could oust Kevin McCarthy earlier this month, mm-hmm. and a somewhat larger group of more traditional Republicans could spike the chances of Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise, who were preferred by the arch-conservatives. So, look, we should note not all these members see themselves as serving the whole Republican Party or the whole Congress. Uh, they see themselves on a mission to disrupt The business of washington they want to drastically reduce the size of the federal government they believe that's what their constituents sent them here to do and they see themselves on a mission
0: what business is not getting done in these crucial times because the house doesn't have a speaker
10: the first item is military aid to israel and ukraine the biden administration has already asked for 105 billion the senate looks willing to go along but the House must say yes to, and it can't say anything until it has a speaker. So the fates of those two allies, Ukraine and Israel, hang in the balance. Virtually all Americans would also be affected if the federal government were to shut down next month. And it will do so unless the House passes the spending legislation it has to pass for the new fiscal year that has already begun.
0: Well, I, hope you, I want to get you to help us understand this moment In the world, Ron, this week, President Biden compared the attack on Israel to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. President says he wants the U.S. to be the arsenal of democracy. He's asked Congress for tens of billions of dollars of military assistance to Ukraine and Israel. Does he have the support for that?
10: You know, that phrase goes back to Franklin Roosevelt in 1940, asking Congress to support the countries that were already fighting the Nazis and their allies in World War II before the United States got into that war. In our present moment, the Senate seems ready to go. The House needs a speaker to act. But if the aid bill is brought to the floor, it's going to matter most what the polls are saying to the politicians. If they still show a plurality of Americans on board for Ukraine— as not as much perhaps as in the early months of that invasion but still on board uh, then that might be enough among Republicans of course support for Ukraine has weakened considerably but their support for Israel is as strong as ever
0: how might Russia how might Russia China Iran and North Korea for that matter respond to American solidarity well, they won't like it, but they can hardly be surprised,
10: especially on Israel. This has been the American pattern to support Israel back through several wars beginning in 1948. All the countries you mentioned have been regularly menacing their neighbors, some of which are allies or potential allies of the United States. So any action against those US-aligned countries, be it Taiwan, South Korea, uh, would be seen as a major provocation and a major
0: escalation by the United States. And Ron Elvin, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. And we turn now to events in Gaza. Trucks carrying food and medical supplies from the United Nations began to trickle through the Rafah crossing from Egypt into Gaza today. In the meantime, the situation inside Gaza continues to become more dire. People are running low on food, water, and fuel. We're joined now by Hani Al-Madun. Uh, he's in the Washington, D.C. area with the U.S. Affiliate of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. Mr. Al-Madun, thanks for being back with us.
11: Thanks for having me.
0: And I must say last, we spoke with you last week and you told us uh, about your family in Gaza. It's been a bad week, hasn't it, for them and so sort of for many others?
11: Yeah, unfortunately we just heard the news three of, uh, about three hours ago, uh, at least 10 family members I'm related to through my sister-in-law they've been killed. And it's tragedy, it's never ending, and we have no time to mourn. And I'm here because this is the right thing to do despite all the sadness and the heavy clouds of of horrors we're seeing over Gaza. So I wanted to talk about anything you want to talk about despite the setbacks I know of personally and the heavy toll the civilians in Gaza are paying right now.
0: Well, thank you very much for that. Can you help us understand why all the negotiations were were so necessary, including a visit from President Biden to get aid trucks in?
11: Yeah, those 20 aid trucks, honestly, it's an insult because, you know, Gaza usually consumed anywhere between 100 and 160 trucks a day of supplies and, and things. And the saddest thing, the most noticeable item on those aid relief trucks were burial clothes. So this is sad. Gaza's running away from burial clothes. Obviously, there is shortage in food. There is a lot of fear in Gaza that whatever is going in is not going to last for six hours for Mm -hmm. food because there is a whole distressful situation and people have not ate in a long time. The Commissioner-General bravely have recognized the situation, acknowledged the passing of 17 UNRWA colleagues and shared that all of our building's coordinates are shared with the Israelis, and despite that, 35 uh, of our buildings have been targeted, some completely destroyed. So it is just, it is in a way uh, an effort to generate, uh, in a way, good PR for certain parties, but it is nothing. And there is hundreds of tracks of aid UNRWA is lining up and other UN agencies. Obviously, UNRWA was the largest UN agency in Gaza, but there are other agencies who work there, like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, everybody's trying to help. But ultimately, this is a humanitarian disaster. And if aid doesn't go in, you know, it is going uh, to be a starvation. It's already a dehydration situation. It is a stressful time for everybody. The staff don't feel safe to distribute the food. I work and I raise money for UNRWA, through UNRWA USA, and I can't even get food to my family. So you can imagine how chaotic the situation is. I know my colleagues are braving all of this, trying to keep people safe at shelters despite everything, but you know, it's not enough. I hope that the US will do the right thing. This is the leader of the free world that is the largest funder of UNRWA. And all of a sudden we feel abandoned in this uh, war. And we hope that more supplies, more aid, medications, hospitals are running low. People are just, yeah. you know, they see people are hurt, they say, ah, oh, we can't save this person, go to the next one. So there is a lot of trauma going on right now. And the agencies, the U.N. agencies are trying to help the 20 trucks. Great, great start. But to be frank with you, this is nothing compared to what's needed. There is no fuel allowed into Gaza. As you can imagine, it runs the hospitals, it runs all the water wells. People are drinking, 95% of the people in Gaza are drinking water that's not safe for human consumption. You can imagine even after this war is over. We're going to have to deal with other diseases. Honey, so this I'll is do. a call in people with a Thank you very much and
0: our best wishes to your family. Mayor Eric Adams of New York is in some political heiswasser as he might say in his fluent artificial intelligence Yiddish. The mayor revealed to City Hall reporters this week that his office has been using artificial intelligence software to make robocalls city hiring events in Yiddish, Mandarin, and other languages he does not speak, which the mayor freely concedes is just about any language other than English. People stop me on the street all the time and say, I didn't know you speak Mandarin, you know. But Albert Fox-Kahn, executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, told the AP the mayor is making deep fakes of himself. This is deeply unethical, especially on the taxpayers' dime." To which Mayor Adams replies, I've got to run this city and I have to be able to speak to people in the languages that they understand, and so do all. All I can say is ni hao, which is not Chinese for forget about it. There is part of the story which may sound almost innocently hilarious. An American politician uses AI to try to make themselves seem even more of a person of the people. In a great and diverse city where the people speak in hundreds of languages from Albanian and Bengali to Tagalog and Yiddish. But there may be a more critical concern for the future. AP reports that Spotify already has an AI feature that can translate a podcast into different languages in the voice of the original podcaster. And there's a company called Eleven Labs that says it can convert what it calls spoken content, like say this very show, into another language, but duplicating the voice of the original speaker. Hey, like dreck, as I might be made to say in Yiddish. I am sure AI companies will insist, won't that just make more information available to more people? And I am dazzled by the thought of entertaining people in Danish. Detta er weekend und goven, jeg er Scott Simon. However, Yeah, but I saw and yeah, but I heard have already become claims of credibility in our information-saturated times. Mayor Adams' voice making robocalls in fluent Mandarin may seem more absurd than harmful, but imagine the real damage that could be done if various operatives begin to use artificial intelligence and deepfake technology to make politicians and public figures seem to say in voices well-known and familiar to us Things that they never really said in any language. In fact, can any of us be utterly sure that somewhere online, it's not happening already? You're listening to NPR News.
7: On 90.9 WBUR, I'm Susan Levy. Ahead at 8.35, members of the Ukrainian national rowing team are competing in this weekend's Head of the Charles. What it's like being cheered on here while loved ones at home are at war. That's at 8.35. Listen on the radio on 90.9 and on the WBUR app.
12: WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. Brookwood School with Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, speaking in the 4 to 14 speaker series on October 24th. Tickets at Brookwood.edu. And Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. 59
7: degrees at 818 rain today and tonight.
2: I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Humanitarian aid deliveries began moving into the Gaza Strip today. Twenty trucks were allowed through the Rafah border crossing from Egypt after Hamas released an American woman and her teenage daughter. The two were the first of some 200 captives to be released following the deadly Hamas attack into Israel. The Hollywood actors' strike hit its 100th day today. There had been optimism when writers clinched a deal earlier this month, but the major studios broke off negotiations with the actors more than a week ago. And the National League Series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Arizona Diamondbacks tied at two games apiece heading into tonight's Game 5. Game 6 of the American League Series between the Houston Astros and the Texas Rangers is tomorrow, with Houston leading three games to two. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
13: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Two American hostages have been freed by Hamas. Judith Ty Renan and her daughter Natalie Shoshana Renan from suburban Chicago will reportedly soon be reunited with family. They were abducted by Hamas while they were staying at the Kibbutz Nahal Oz. Ben Renan, is Natalie Renan's older brother. He joins us now from Denver. Mr. Renan, thank you so much for being with us.
5: Thank you for having me on.
0: What do you know about how they happen to be released?
5: Uh, It's it's an absurd situation. Uh, I first heard from a national news syndicate that texted me and said, hey, do you have any comment? That's how quickly it moved. Uh, We were anticipating today to be another day of very sad interviews exhausting interviews trying to get natalie and judas back home but uh we when this news hit it was like all the emotions that we had been holding while we were fighting for them just erupted
0: i gather they were in israel for um your grandmother's birthday do you know what happened
5: so when they they were in Israel for my grandmother's birthday, as well as to celebrate the high holidays, um, at 7 a.m. my American time, my father received a text about 13 days ago saying, hey, I'm in the house, uh, just so you know, there's gunshots and explosions outside. I'm locking the door and I'm going to stay as quiet as possible. When the city was liberated about... Four or five hours later, they searched the house, which was empty, and they found glass on the inside of the house, meaning someone had broken in. Mm-hmm. A couple days later, we had information from a neighbor that he had watched them be uh, escorted out of the house at gunpoint by Hamash.
0: What have these days uh, been like for you? Have you been able to talk to them?
5: I have not been able to speak with them since uh, my father briefly was on the phone with Natalie when she was released, uh, and apparently her spirits are high, uh, which is wonderful. Um, You know, she seemed very composed, uh, but these days have just been a nightmare. You know, it's 13 days, but it feels like 13 years trying to keep Mm -hmm. composure because you know that getting emotional isn't going to solve anything. And it seems surreal that suddenly, I won't even say it's over. We're, we're yeah. on to the next journey of what this is, which is the their recovery.
0: May I ask, were you, were you calling congressional offices, the White House, the U.N.?
5: Yeah, we've been in touch with uh, all authorities. Uh, We spoke with President Biden about a week ago, and then my father spoke again with President Biden today, who made a very deep commitment to all American hostages, but really hostages of every nation and and Mm -hmm. people on both sides, and letting us know that he was doing everything in his power to help return family members
0: do your emotions let me put it this way are your emotions tempered by the fact that um you know your uh, your sister and stepmother are still in a zone of conflict and there are, are other hostages still being held
5: i mean we we're a very peaceful family and that's what has made this whole situation so absurd that natalie and judith aren't politicians. They aren't soldiers. They're, they're people who love people. And so uh, our family is grieving in this moment of elation. We're grieving for all the families that are still being kept hostage. We're grieving for innocent Israelis and Palestinians who are caught in the middle of this, this horrid uh, humanitarian crisis.
0: Ben Renan uh, in Denver, and uh, he is the brother of uh, Natalie Shoshana Renan, who along with uh, her mother Judith Tyre Renan were released from uh, custody by Hamas Friday night. Mr. Renan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. There's a new shot available this fall that could protect babies against respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. But as Amelia Templeton reports from Portland, Oregon, it is so new and expensive, some babies might not get it in time or at all.
14: RSV is the leading reason babies under 12 months end up in the hospital. And last winter, RSV hit Oregon and other places really hard. No pediatric ICU beds available in the entire state of Michigan. Pediatric rooms are full right now with children who are struggling to breathe. But doctors say this year could be better. There's a new shot pregnant moms can get before giving birth. But the window for getting that is quite narrow. So many pediatricians have focused on the other new option, nursevimab. It's a dose of man-made antibodies that lasts about six months. That's long enough to get infants through their first RSV season when they're the most vulnerable. It can cut the risk of hospitalization by 80%. Emily Bent got excited when she heard the CDC had approved the new immunization. That was two months ago when she was pregnant. Now she's at home, on the couch in Vancouver, Washington with her new baby, Willow. But her excitement has turned into frustration. Just hours earlier, at Willow's two-week checkup, she'd asked the pediatrician for nirsevimab.
15: She literally just shrugged and was like, well, it's coming, but we don't know when. And that was literally the end of the discussion.
14: Ben's been searching online, too, for clinics or pharmacies offering nirsevimab, and found nothing for Willow. It feels a little bit like I'm waiting for her to get sick at any time. Nirsevimab did start shipping this month, but because of the price tag, many pediatricians have been reluctant to order it. At $495 per dose, it's the most expensive standard childhood shot. And because of a quirk in the Affordable Care Act, insurance plans have a year before they have to cover it. Dr. Sean O'Leary is with the University of Colorado Med School.
16: So when all of a sudden you have a new product that you're supposed to give to your entire birth cohort and you've got to pay $500 that may or may not get paid back, That's just not financially viable.
14: Some insurers have come out and said they'll pay for it, but not all. And there are even problems with the government program that supplies free vaccines to low-income kids. (laughs) At Mid-Valley Children's Clinic in Albany, Oregon, 70% of the patients are on Medicaid. So all their shots are free under this program called Vaccines for Children, or VFC. In the back there's a fridge with tens of thousands of dollars of childhood vaccines in it
15: this is our main fridge so all of our vfc
14: is on these pink lines the vfc boxes have hot pink stickers to help nurses keep track and give them only to the kids who are eligible pediatrician eddie frothingham is thrilled that nursevimab is coming to this clinic he's seen how sick babies get every winter
9: the idea that we could have something that prevents most of that is just very exciting
14: but Frothingham says it would actually be better if some of the free doses were going to the hospital that's right across the street. That way, babies could get nirsevimab right after birth, even before they head home.
9: Many of our newborns go home to caring, affectionate, loving siblings who are actively dripping snot at the time that the child is born. So the sooner we can protect them, the better.
14: But the hospital across the street is not signed up for vaccines for children. In fact, only 12% of U.S. hospitals that deliver babies are enrolled in VFC. Now, many are trying to enroll for next year. But this fall, most hospitals won't have free freenersevimab on hand. And that will mean delays getting it to newborns across the country. For NPR News, I'm Amelia Templeton in Portland, Oregon.
0: The story comes from NPR's partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting and KFF Health News. First came the book, now a movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, recounts a series of brutal murders of Osage Indians a century ago for their wealth and oil-rich land. Now, the community where many of the murders took place is figuring out how to try to open up about this painful past. KOSU's Allison Herrera has this story from Fairfax, Oklahoma.
12: Dr. Carol Connor knows downtown Fairfax, population 1100, like the back of her hand. So a few years ago, it really started catching her attention when she would see cars parked in front of the historic Tall Chief Theater. And so I would be driving
17: down our main street, which is mostly vacant of cars, and there would be a Volvo or a Lexus, and most people here drive ranch trucks or other non-luxury vehicles. Carol is a little extroverted. So I would pull up next to them and say, what are you doing here? Did you read the book? And they would say, how did you know that? Well, duh, there's no one else on the street and you're
12: a an Alexis from Minnesota. <laughs> This was shortly after David Grant's nonfiction book was released. Carol and her husband Joe couldn't stop and talk to everyone. So with money from the nonprofit they run called the Fairfax Community Foundation, they decided to do something about it.
8: So I, I basically created this exhibit giving people a background of who the Osage people were, how we got here, what led up to the murders.
12: That's Dr. Joe Connor, Carol's husband. He's an Osage citizen. He said he wanted to tell people the why.
8: What led up to it, and also importantly, what was the impact of those murders on this community afterwards?
12: The murders began over 100 years ago, but they are still not widely discussed in Fairfax.
18: My high school actually had us all read the book, and that's the first time I found
0: out
9: about the murders and what happened to the Osage people.
12: Owen Hutchison is a young Osage man who works for Joe and Carol Connor and grew up in Fairfax.
9: And
0: I think a part of that was Osages that do still live here didn't want to talk about it. And then the people who are non-Osages that lived here either didn't know or they were complicit at
9: the time.
12: Shannon Shaw-Duty is the editor of the Osage News and also grew up here. Her great-aunt Liz was alive at the time and had friends and family who were murdered. They didn't want to talk about it and we never understood. But we do now, it was too painful. When the book hit the shelves in 2017, Carol remembers getting a very frosty response when she put an item in the paper she and Joe publish called the Fairfax Chief, a newspaper that's been around since the 1920s. Small town newspapers,
17: no one ever unsubscribes. They die, but they don't unsubscribe. But the week that we had David Graham at the Tall Chief Theater to sign books, I had 12 people unsubscribe from the newspaper.
12: But a few years later, attitudes began to change. Martin Scorsese signed on to direct the movie. That was exciting. And more importantly, his film crew actually listened to Osages about their concerns for the movie. Shannon Shaw Duty would hear from fellow Osages about it. They were telling
15: me how they felt and, you know, there was outrage and then there was,
12: oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Joe and Carol Connor wanted to take the momentum of the film and run with it. They're part of an effort to revitalize downtown Fairfax, including a historic theater built for the community after the murders.
8: Oh, we're standing right in front of the uh, Tall Chief Theater built by Alex Tallchief. Saving it is
12: a passion project for Joe Connor.
8: We see this as an investment in the future of not only just Osages, but also the entire community.
12: Osage citizen Danette Daniels is also trying to uplift the community. She was raised here. She's opening up a museum, gift and coffee shop in a building she bought and renovated. I want to be part of bringing Fairfax back, uh, revitalizing Fairfax. She's hoping to give tours on the second floor of the building, where the two doctors, the Schoen brothers, allegedly poisoned Osages. Oh my God, look, <gasps> so this is filmed in the movie, this is filmed. I asked Annette yeah. how she felt about offering yes. tours to people about wow. this terrible subject. Well, it's history, so it's just the truth. Mm-hmm. And people need to understand the truth. What does it feel like to own part of this history? Uh, it feels good, especially as an Osage person. Yeah, taking it back. For these Fairfax citizens, the movie is an opportunity to honor the victims of the murders and move forward. For NPR News in Fairfax, Oklahoma, I'm Alison
14: Herrera.
0: And note to our listeners that since Allison reported this story, Joe Connor passed away. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR's Weekend Edition. I'm Susan Levy. More than 11,000 rowers from around the world are taking to the Charles River this weekend, competing in the annual head of the Charles Regatta. Among them is Maria Praden, a 14-year-old from Ukraine, and her trainer is her father, Olympic coach Anton Praden. WBUR's Arena Machavariani joined them for a few days before the race.
4: It's near dawn, and the red sun is just rising, as Maria Prodan and her father set out to train from community rowing in Brighton. (inaudible) Anton tells his daughter in Russian to keep her knees together for better balance. You can say rowing is in Maria's blood. Her father comes from a long line of renowned Ukrainian rowing coaches. The Pratins arrived in Boston last winter, after Russia's war in Ukraine forced them to abandon their home outside of Kyiv. Maria says on the first day of war, everything went white around her. That same night, she heard what sounded like mosquitoes, but they were helicopters flying over her village.
3: I ran outside and I was like, Mom, those Ukrainian helicopters. And then I saw the Russian flag, and just imagine if one of those helicopters landed in our village. I will not sit here like, for
4: now, um, I will be dead. Maria and her mother hid in an underground shelter for a month. They finally evacuated to the Czech Republic, then to Canada, where Maria got back to rowing, and finally to Boston. Early this spring, Maria won two gold medals at her first formal competition, known as the Head of the Queue in Cambridge. She says it was a great warm-up for this weekend's big race.
3: Now, I don't have that fear of the first race, so I'm going to be okay.
4: Maria admits it's not always easy to train under her own father.
3: My dad is always saying, on the water, I'm coach, on the land, I'm your father. And I'm like, how is it working? Can I change my blood like for one hour, for two hours? No. So yeah, that's just really, really hard.
4: But her dad's unrelenting support gives Maria confidence. She says she knows every competition is a step towards her ultimate goal, Olympic gold. But for now, she has time to indulge in the atmosphere of the regatta and enjoy it as the teenager she is.
3: And I'm really excited about my time, about the festival, about the food, oh
4: my, about the merch. On Sunday, she knows the competition will be intense.
3: The main thing to hope. You have a hope, you have an idea how to row. Bro, Just go and start rowing.
4: Maria Pradden will be on the water early tomorrow morning, and her dad will be there to cheer her on. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Merrimack Repertory Theater, With Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller, now through November 5th. Tickets at MRT.org. And Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company, supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Massachusetts is again considering legislation that would legalize medical aid in dying. Democratic State Senator Joe Comerford of Northampton presented one of two related bills to a legislative committee. It would allow terminally ill patients with a life expectancy of six months or less to take medication that would end their lives. If passed, Massachusetts would be the 11th state to legalize medical aid in dying. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is calling on members of faith communities to report hateful incidents or threats of violence. She made the remarks yesterday at an interfaith prayer service calling for peace in Palestine hosted by a local Muslim organization. Wu says she fears violence in the Middle East is escalating anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim sentiments in Massachusetts. Last week, Wu addressed members of the Jewish community during Friday Shabbat services at Temple Israel in Boston. The Berkshire District Attorney's Office is giving a presentation in Spanish today in Pittsfield. Nancy Cohen reports the office will be looking at how the criminal justice system works.
17: The presentation will go over how to request a restraining order, what services are available for victims, what happens in court, and how to report a crime. Victim witness advocate Carmen Guevara says, sometimes victims are afraid to go to the police.
19: Someone might say, you know, it's so easy, just call 911 and report a crime. For someone who
3: doesn't know English, it takes a little bit more courage and say, you know, I wanna report this, this happened to me.
17: She says, sometimes people don't know what could happen to them or their families if they report a crime or whether someone could retaliate. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen.
7: It's 59 degrees at 840. Hey, this is
0: Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition.
12: Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm
6: Lisa Mullins at
12: WBUR.
0: You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala.
12: My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW
7: Bug
6: painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from SEED, SEED's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com slash public. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The war between Israel and Hamas complicates the situation in Ukraine. The Ukrainians say they strongly support Israel and claim Russia is supporting the militant group Hamas, but they're also concerned that the conflict in the Middle East might distract their allies and leave Ukraine vulnerable. NPR's Joanna Kakisis reports from Ukraine.
19: Lesia Shalast lives in a village outside Kyiv, which was almost reached by Russian invaders in 2022. She says Ukraine's Western allies supported her country's soldiers as they fought back. Now, these allies are focused on another war in Israel and Gaza. <laughs> of course we're afraid, she says, and it's not only me. Everyone is afraid, including another local, Tetyana Kovalchuk, who says Ukraine cannot keep defending itself without resources from the West. Those resources aren't limitless. And our own human resources also aren't limitless. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky insists that support from the U.S. is stronger than ever. In a video posted to social media, Zelensky said that he spoke to President Biden just before Biden asked Congress for more than $100 billion to arm Ukraine and Israel.
11: There is unity in our country and unity with our partners, especially America.
19: Zelensky has strongly backed Israel and compares the militant group Hamas to Russia, He says both are terrorists. It's a common opinion in Ukraine. At a cafe near Parliament in Kyiv, I meet Lisa Yasko, a lawmaker with Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. She believes Russia is funding Hamas. This is what we are trying to be very loud about, that Russia is Spending so much resources on armed people around all the world to create uh, dangers inside the societies. But she also acknowledges that many countries, especially in the global south, don't see this. Instead, they see Ukraine's Western allies as the problem for ignoring the plight of Palestinians. Lana Zerkol, a Ukrainian diplomat and former deputy foreign minister, disagrees with this view. A lot of
17: Ukrainians understand that Palestinians, they did not start this war, but they're rather victims of this war, the main victims of this war.
19: More than 200 Ukrainian citizens live in Gaza, where near-constant bombings in the last couple weeks have killed thousands of Palestinians. But Zirkel says the murders of Israeli families by Hamas militants remind her of the worst Russian atrocities in Ukraine. Because
17: definitely these horrible pictures from Israel, they reminded very much Bucha and Mariupol and other places where Ukrainians suffered. And despite the fact that it happened in Israel, we felt this pain as ours.
19: And the pain of war, the one at home, is still raw here, especially in the northeastern city of Kharkiv. It's near the Russian border and often attacked.
3: Know,
19: School teacher Olena Fedorova is riding a bus with her second graders. They ask me about this new war, she says, and what it means. And like the rest of us, she adds, they wonder what it means for the war at home. Joanna Kisses, NPR News, reporting from Kyiv and Kharkiv.
0: The pandemic has left scientists with many mysteries, including what causes some people to have long COVID. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha, you can hear how researchers are studying the connection between low levels of a particular neurotransmitter and some long COVID symptoms, including... Fatigue and brain fog. You can listen live on the radio, on your phone, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. I have always wanted to say
6: this. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones.
20: (laughs)
0: Wow, the consummate and classic rock band Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Ronnie Wood with Hackney Diamonds. The first album of original material in 18 years and their first since the death of their great drummer, Charlie Watts in 2021. The drummer does appear on a couple of tracks. Keith Richards, one of the greatest guitarists in history joins us now, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Hey Scott, hey, thanks for the build-up, man. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have a new record to talk about. You know.
0: Tell me how this comes about after uh, you know a number of years.
1: I, I wish I could explain the ins and outs. Obviously, we, we we record all the time. And last year we were on the road, and Mick looked at me. Look out! <laughs> He's got something to say. Um, look, we've got a blitzer record here. We got a we got a like. Push it through and say, "Here we are, let's go." So I said, "Okay, Mick, let's let's go for it." And I'm still actually listening uh, back to myself uh, now, saying, "I don't believe we cut a record that quick, you know." But uh, it was a great feeling, and the the thing coming out of it is very good, you know, for me, you know.
0: We should explain. Hackney Diamonds is a British phrase, right? For
6: for what?
1: oh a hackney diamond is like a you know a really you know a good saturday night that went bad <laughs> so it's what's left on sunday morning uh, there's a broken glass and stuff that's basically it you know
0: <laughs> you never look at each other and say you know we we really could just put our feet up and sit under the sun in monaco or something
1: hey we can put our feet up for a little bit but you know it just you're, you're into this thing for uh, all the way really i mean that's this is yes. what we do this is what we love and we got to see this rolling stones through I'm gonna you right. I'm gonna
9: you
0: what was it like to well, to not work with Charlie Watts after all this time.
1: As part of the Stones, it was difficult, made much, much easier by Mr. Watts himself, who had uh, always recommended Steve Jordan, as if anything happens and blah Steve Jordan's the man. That first advice came many years ago to me. And that caused me to work with the expensive winos with Steve Jordan. So I've been working with Steve Jordan for almost 30, 40 years. It, a hug, it was a, a natural folding the events and uh but at the same time i do know that it is with charlie's blessing which like makes us all a lot happy you know come on
0: this song is pretty blunt about some of the mistakes we can make in our life let's listen and ask you to talk on mess it up Where's this song come from, Mr. Richards?
1: Hey, it's part of life, you know, because he laid this one on me. It was already done, cooked and fried, you know. So I just, I just added my stuff in and put it there. But uh, at the same time, I understand what you mean, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you know, if you ask Mick, you might get a better explanation than from me.
0: (laughs) Well, he's welcome anytime, but you're the guy we have here now. I know. I, I've never heard this story from you. You went to grade school with Mick Jagger?
1: Oh, yeah. Mick and I were at school together from about the age of five until uh, ten. So we knew each other in that that, with that kind of period, you know.
0: I'm assuming you didn't play any music together then.
1: Uh, no, not then, no. We, we, we used to play around together. We knew each other well. I mean, you know, we were like, pretty good of a, friends from that age. Mick was very, very bright. And I was very dumb uh, so Nick went into uh grammar schools, and I went to a technical school mm-hmm. I needed to learn a few things and then we re met during that period sort of just after school and uh found out that we surprisingly enough you know not only knew each other but that we that we both loved the same music and were like uh, you know, I'm both passionate about it and uh, and that's uh, really how we, you know, we remit and that's that's the Stones, baby, that's it.
0: Because what I've read and heard over the years is that you met on a train platform and one of you was carrying a Chess Records album?
1: Almost right. It so happened that we used to take the same train. I, I was going to art school and Nick was going to the London School of Economics, do you believe this?
0: Yes, of course. You said he was smart. Yeah, Yeah. you know, but this is the truth.
1: Um, And somehow happened that we suddenly got into the same carriage together. And I looked at what he was carrying, which was uh, two albums. And one was The Best of Muddy Waters.
20: I got a boy child coming, gonna be. He gonna be a rolling stone. Sure
14: enough, he's a rolling stone
1: and the other was rocking at the hops by chuck berry now i had never seen anybody possessing such treasures in my life man because these were you know chess records out of chicago
0: and what was it about that music because it's uh and the fact it makes an appearance on this album too
1: it was real at our age being like war babies and everything and um, i guess uh, it was there was no showbiz about it. It was, uh, it was the stuff. You suddenly you felt that you were listening to something rather deeper than most people were listening to, and uh, the blues is, uh, is about as deep as you can get.
16: Well, I wish I
10: was a catfish swimming in.
1: Actually, we're in an apartment and we were we had our first gig. One of us was on the phone. I think it was Brian Jones who was on the phone saying we want to place an advert and say we're playing in this place so and so so. And they said, uh, "What do you call? Do you have a name?" And oh God, we haven't got a name. And on the floor was the same album, and on the back the first track was Rolling Stone Blues. Oh, my God. Bone calls Costing Money. We're the Rolling Stones,
21: <laughs>
1: Well, my mother told my father
6: Just before I was born She said he got a boy, child coming, he's gonna be,
10: gonna be a Rolling Stone
0: I covered Muddy Waters' funeral, by the way. You did? Yeah, he, lo- he loved you, you know.
1: Oh, I know that. I did. I did once fall asleep at Muddy's house and woke up with howling wolves. <laughs> Don't ask me how. Yeah.
0: Okay. Do you uh, do you dream music?
1: No, except that I do have to say with satisfaction. Yeah. I had just got, it was a new thing, then the cassette player, I put it beside the bed. I did, I mean, I fell asleep as I did occasionally. And when I woke up in the morning, I realized that the tape had run from the beginning to the end. I had obviously, I'd woken up in the middle of the night, pushed the, the buttons and just played that phrase, and uh, I can't get no satisfaction. Da, 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 da. And uh, and then I and the rest of it, the tape is uh, me snoring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you still enjoy performing? It sounds like.
1: Yeah, man, I love it. That's what I do. It uh, keeps me on my toes and keeps my fingers moving. And I'm still finding, you know, different ways of playing things and the way, you know, it's. Uh, It's a learning process, even though you're getting to be around 80, you know. Believe me, (laughs) it don't stop.
0: (laughs) Can those of us on the outside imagine what it's like to be Keith Richards in the Rolling Stones?
1: No, I have got no idea what they could imagine. I I am who I am, and they got my folks, and uh, I've still got my band, man, you know. I got a band.
0: Yeah, so there's another album in the pipeline?
1: Whoa, you're <laughs> really pushing <them. laughs> There's plenty more stuff uh, left over from Hackney Diamonds to work on. There'll always be another one until we drop.
0: Keith Richards, the new Rolling Stone album, Hackney Diamonds. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Scott. Nice to talk to you, man.
0: Sorry, this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
13: Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indeed designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at PublicWelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station
7: weekend edition Saturday continues. The Egypt-Gaza border opened briefly to allow a trickle of aid in, but it's a drop in the bucket for the thousands of Palestinians stuck there.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. The Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform, October 25th, emkinstitute.org. And Circle Furniture, where interior designers can help you rethink your living room or family room during their annual upholstery event through October, circlefurniture.com. As he
16: urges Congress to fund both causes, President Biden is trying to tie a link between the war in Ukraine and the war between
20: Israel and Hamas.
0: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate
16: it. We'll look at Russian President Vladimir Putin's support for Hamas and what's behind it on All Things Considered from NPR News.
8: Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR.
19: I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, DC, this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from Israel and Gaza, including two Israeli peace activists from opposite sides of the divide with common hopes for the future. Also, the effect interest rates can have on housing prices, the prospects for a new government in Poland, and Sandra Newman reimagines a classic at the invitation of the Orwell Estates, 1984, retold through the eyes of Julia, the main female character who lives in a nightmare society.
21: The telescreens are always on, so you hear Big Brother's voice droning at you as you sleep, but she's so used to that that she can't sleep
0: without it. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, October 21, 2023.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Leaders and foreign ministers from more than 20 countries, most of them Arab and European, are meeting in Egypt today to discuss the crisis in Gaza. Among those attending what's being called a peace summit is the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, and King Abdullah of Jordan, who's calling for a lasting peace.
13: The only path to a safe and secure future for the people of the Middle East and the entire world for the Jewish people, for Christians, for Muslims alike, starts with the belief that every human life is of equal value and it ends with two states, Palestine and Israel, sharing land and peace from the river to the sea.
2: The conference in Cairo is being held as the first humanitarian aid convoy was allowed to pass through the Rafah border between Egypt and Gaza. The convoy included 20 trucks, but the UN says the life-saving supplies are a fraction of what's needed. Hundreds of foreign passport holders, including many Americans, have been stuck in Gaza amid the blockade. The State Department alerted American citizens of today's potential opening of the Rafah crossing, but it appears no people were allowed to cross. Israel's mental health crisis line has seen a Surging calls since the attacks by Hamas, as NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports.
22: Nira Kaplansky oversees the helpline run by a nonprofit called Natal. She says callers in more recent days have reported a range of trauma-related symptoms, like nightmares, intrusive thoughts of the attacks, and wanting to avoid situations that remind them of what they went through. I don't want to be where there is people around me and I don't know who they are. I don't want to be in an enclosed place. I don't want to see the destruction. Kaplansky says while the number of calls have gone down since the first days of the attacks, call volume remains higher than normal and will
12: likely stay that way for a while. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News.
2: House Republicans back at the drawing board. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports with Congressman Jim Jordan out. Lawmakers are scrambling to nominate a new candidate for speaker.
12: Just hours after Jim Jordan lost his third consecutive bid for the speakership, the GOP conference immediately got to work to find a new nominee. A number of potential candidates have been floated, including Majority Whip Tom Emmer and Oklahoma Republican Kevin Hearn. But nothing is set yet. House Republicans are expected to restart the nomination process with a candidate forum on Monday, with the next vote expected on Tuesday. The House has been without a speaker for more than two weeks now, which has put all legislative business on hold. Windsor-Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
2: And you're listening to NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Anita Mann, who had five relatives in Israel abducted by Hamas, says two of them have died. Jason Greenberg told NBC Ten that 80-year-old Carmela Don and her 12-year-old granddaughter Noya Don were killed. Greenberg says Carmela had a heart condition and Noya was on the autism spectrum. He speculated that the two of them were, quote, slowing down Hamas. About a hundred people were forced to evacuate a Green Line train and walk along the tracks yesterday after a problem with its electrical system. The Boston Globe reports the part of the train that connects to the overhead electrical wires on the new Green Line extension failed. The line was shut down for about four hours until crews repaired part of the train's overhead system. A disease that harms beech trees has been confirmed for the first time in Vermont. It was found in the southeastern town of Vernon. Beech leaf disease is caused by an invasive worm that's native to Japan, and there is no known cure for that tree disease. The disease now has been reported in 14 states, including Massachusetts. The USS Constitution is celebrating its 226th anniversary today. There will be a free birthday party inside the ship's museum featuring themed mini golf games and crafts. There will also be a 21-gun salute at around 9.30 this morning on the pier, followed by tours for the public starting at noon. The Constitution's skipper is Commander B.J. Farrell.
14: Constitution was built for freedom of the seas, open shipping lanes, and anti-piracy, all
7: missions the United States Navy still does today. The technology has changed, but the missions haven't, and why we still exist as a commissioned warship is to represent the United States Navy to the public and to share the stories of what we've done around the world. The ship was undefeated in battle and destroyed or captured 33 enemy ships. It is the oldest commissioned warship still afloat in the world. Bruins are on the road against the Kings tonight. Revolution hosts Philadelphia tonight. Rain today, low 60s. Rain tonight with a low around 50. Tomorrow, partly sunny, mid 50s. For Monday, partly sunny near 60. And Tuesday, sunshine, low 60s. 59 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us.
9: WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. There's actually some good news in Israel as two U.S. hostages, a mother and daughter, were released by Hamas following diplomatic efforts by Qatar. And a trickle of desperately needed humanitarian aid is finally being allowed to cross over from Egypt into the Gaza Strip. This all while people wait for a possible Israeli military ground operation in the Gaza Strip. And BRS Peter Kenyon is following events from Jerusalem. Peter, thanks for being with us.
9: Hi, Scott.
8: Let's begin with the, the two hostages who were released. What do we know? They are Judith Renan and her 19-year-old daughter, Natalie. They hail from Chicago. Natalie's father said when he hugs her, it will be the happiest day of his life. The Israeli government issued a statement announcing the release, saying they were taken to a military base and were safe. The statement also said Israel would do everything in its power to bring the rest of the hostages home.
0: Of course, this is wonderful news for, for that family. What do we know about any other efforts for the release of hostages?
8: Well, uh, this is what has uh, so many other families worried. Uh, the Israeli goal, militarily, is to destroy Hamas's ability to carry out terror attacks like the one on October 7th. Uh, and there's certainly strong support for that goal in Israel. I spoke with analyst Al Zisser at Tel Aviv University. Uh, here's how he put it.
9: You know, usually the Israeli calculation is, we'll send forces. One of our soldiers might be killed, might be kidnapped, but after what happens, what does it matter? So. I think there is more readiness in Israel to, yes, do whatever is needed.
8: But Hamas appears to be using civilians, both Palestinians and Israeli hostages, as human shields. And I should add that so far there's been no official confirmation that a widely expected Israeli ground operation will actually go ahead for sure. That's another thing people here will be watching out for. It would seem like an incredibly difficult mission to eliminate Hamas's ability to carry out terror attacks without a major loss of civilian life.
0: Meanwhile, earlier today, 20 trucks carrying aid crossed from Egypt into Gaza. We understand it's now closed because those trucks have all passed. What can you tell us about the aid?
8: Well, not long ago, we saw the first reports of the aid trucks being led by a U.N. vehicle uh, moving not only through the Egyptian side of the crossing, but onward toward the Gaza Strip. Hamas' statement said the aid they were bringing to Gaza includes food, medicine, and medical supplies. Crucially, no fuel which Israel had questioned, but which Gaza hospitals need for emergency generators. And they also need it to run the desalination plants Gaza relies on to provide safe drinking water. Uh, A Palestinian Red Crescent worker called the aid uh, very disappointing. Uh, And another point, in addition to what was left out, uh, this just isn't nearly enough aid to care for more than two million Gazans. There are some 200 trucks waiting to cross. Uh, Hamas said this won't change the catastrophic medical conditions in Gaza. And the lack of fuel is exacerbating that. Uh, there is some hope, maybe the only hope, that they got one delivery across, and maybe that would clear the way for more in the future.
0: And at the same time, violence seems to be escalating beyond Gaza uh, into the West Bank and at the northern border, and, including reports of rockets and fire from Hezbollah in Lebanon. What do we know about that?
8: Israel says an IDF reservist was killed by an anti-tank missile near the Israeli-Lebanese border yesterday in Cairo an international gatherings taking place to discuss ways of de-escalating the conflict, but neither Iran nor Israel is attending. I spoke with Israeli analyst and columnist Dalia Shendlin, who told me the Hezbollah attacks are very concerning because of the prospect of this widening into a broader regional war. She says at the moment, she feels, quote, closer to a regional war than we have ever been in her lifetime.
0: And Piers Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. More than a year and a half, the Federal Reserve has been trying to put the brakes on inflation with higher interest rates, but the U.S. economy still chugs along. A GDP report out this coming week is expected to show strong economic growth during July, August, and September. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you. Higher interest rates are supposed to tamp down spending. Um, That hasn't happened exactly, has it?
23: No. uh, Americans have been spending pretty freely. Retail sales uh, last month were up more than expected and easily outpaced inflation. People are spending a lot of money at restaurants, uh, on live entertainment. Retailers had a good back-to-school season. Uh, Just looking around my neighborhood, it seems like people out a lot for Halloween decorations. Spending around the Christmas holidays is also projected to be up about 5% from a year ago. Uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell told the Economic Club of New York this week, the economy has proven to be resilient despite the sharp run-up in interest rates. If you think back a year, many forecasts called for the U.S. economy to be in recession this year. Not only has that not happened, growth is now running for this year above its longer-run trend. So that's been a surprise, driven largely by uh, consumer spending, driven by a very strong job market. And we've also had inflation coming down. That's all good news. Unemployment's been under 4% for 20 months in a row. Wages are now rising faster than prices, so paychecks are stretching farther. The one potential downside, though, is if the economy stays this strong, inflation, which has come down a lot, might stop coming down and plateau somewhere above the Fed's 2% target. And if that happens, then the central bank might have to push interest rates even higher.
0: But one casualty of rising interest rates is the housing market, isn't it?
23: Yeah, mortgage rates are way up, uh, housing sales are way down. Freddie Max is the average rate on a thirty year home loan, now top seven point six percent. And those high rates are cutting into both supply and demand for housing. You know, they're hitting supply because most people who already own a home have a mortgage with a much lower interest rate, so they're reluctant to sell. And then higher rates are also pricing a lot of would-be buyers out of the market. So you got fewer buyers, fewer sellers, turnover in the housing market last month was the lowest it's been in more than a dozen years. That said, with so few homes on the market, prices are staying high. Uh, The average home is selling in about three weeks, and more than one out of four sells for more than its asking price. So if you're heading out to an open house this weekend, good luck.
0: Higher interest rates also contribute to a growing federal deficit. What do we know about that?
23: Yeah, the Treasury Department just closed the books on the federal government's fiscal year, and the annual deficit soared to nearly $1.7 trillion. That's 23% more red ink than the year before. The government actually spent 2% less this past year than the year before, but tax collections dropped by 9%. So you had a bigger budget gap, and interest payments on that whopping federal debt jumped to a record $879 billion, more than we spend on defense. Uh, Powell doesn't like to kibitz about tax and spending decisions that Congress makes, but he did say this is not a good look. It's not a secret. We know that we're on an unsustainable path fiscally. It's not that the level of the debt is unsustainable. It's not. It's that the path we're on is unsustainable, and we'll have to get off that path sooner rather than later. For now though we're just running headlong down that path this week the white house asked for another 106 billion dollars in spending for ukraine israel gaza and things like border security Uh, whatever the merits of that spending it does add to the growing pressure on the debt
0: and pierre scott horsley thanks so much you're welcome opposition parties in poland won enough votes earlier this week to force out the current right-wing government after its two terms in power But civil rights activists in the country say they do not expect dramatic changes. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Warsaw.
16: As results from last weekend's election began pouring in, Ubert Zubecki watched on in disbelief as it started to dawn on him and his country of 40 million that the right-wing Law and Justice Party would not be governing Poland much longer.
18: It's like living
16: in a toxic household with a violent partner and suddenly you're free of them. How can you learn to live again. Sobeki works for Love Does Not Exclude, an association representing Poland's LGBTQ community. For the past eight years, the ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party has established what it called LGBTQ-free zones across the country. It's called homosexuals animals, emissaries of Satan, and worse. A few years ago, when the retailing giant IKEA fired a Polish employee for making homophobic remarks on the company's internal website, Poland's government sued on behalf of the employee. But now that a more liberal government is on its way in, Sobeki isn't sure how he feels. He says the vast majority of those in the opposition who will likely form the next government are old guard politicians like former Prime Minister Donald Tusk, with whom Sobeki's organization has already tried to negotiate equal rights. He was not a very good partner to mm. discuss it with, he always treated us like a problem rather than uh, a social group with whom he can meet. He never met with us in person. Never. Tusk Civic Coalition made a campaign promise to introduce a bill to legalize civil unions. But Sobeki says it's not clear what legal rights that'll give his community, if anything. Sobeki quotes the Dalai Lama, do not confuse happiness with cessation of pain. And this is exactly the kind of situation. Just because we can count on public television no longer calling us pedophiles, Maybe this is not the highest standards that we should aim for. A few neighborhoods away, Natalia Broniarczyk was unpacking from a trip to Strasbourg, France, where she accepted an EU award for her work on abortion rights when she heard the election news.
3: You can see that I'm quite cheerful, but I'm also realist. So I know that we still have so much work to do.
16: Three years ago, Poland's government banned abortion, even in the case of malformed fetuses that threatened a woman's life.
3: We were breaking law many times to save someone's life. We were sending pills to hospitals, which is illegal. We were calling to hospitals and threatening doctors that we will send TV if they will not do a procedure.
16: Last weekend, Arcek says police showed up at her parents' home outside of Warsaw looking for her. A new incoming government will likely mean these visits could stop, but Arcek is not optimistic.
3: And I think that they are not brave enough to be supporters of legal abortion on demand. And to be honest, I don't have any hope if it comes to Donald Tusk, because he promised so many times legal abortion.
16: That was when he was prime minister years ago, and she says he didn't keep his promises. Tusk has pledged to introduce a bill that would legalize abortion for pregnancies up to 12 weeks. But Brolyarczyk is not holding her breath. She says now the waiting starts for Donald Tusk and his incoming government to be brave and go beyond their promises. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Warsaw.
0: You're listening to NPR News.
15: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars.
7: And coming up in about 20 minutes, Israeli peace activists, one of whom is also Palestinian, about their hopes for the conflict in Gaza.
13: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window-and-door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at
7: RenewalByAndersonCares.com. If you're heading out to the head of the Charles Regatta this weekend, WBUR's Field Guide to Boston has essential logistics. Check out WBUR.org fieldguide field guide for where to sit, eat, and the best ways to get there.
2: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Trucks carrying humanitarian aid began crossing the Egyptian border into Gaza today, bringing needed food and medical supplies. Twenty trucks passed through the Rafah border crossing, but the UN says the supplies are a fraction of what's needed. The aid trucks crossed into Gaza hours after an American woman and her teenage daughter were released by Hamas militants. They were the first of some 200 hostages to be released. President Biden has spoken with the two and says the White House is working around the clock to secure the release of other Americans. And the House remains at a standstill. After Republicans dropped Jim Jordan as their nominee for speaker, they are now searching for another nominee. Members have until noon tomorrow to declare their candidacy. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org afterthefact. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The U.S. State Department has warned U.S. citizens to leave Lebanon. It comes amid growing fears of a major escalation between the militant group Hezbollah and Israel. The U.S. sent warships to the region last week hoping to deter Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, from launching a full-scale attack. Mohanan Hajali is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, and he joins us now from London. Thanks so much for being with us.
20: Thank you for hosting me.
0: There have already been deadly exchanges between Hezbollah and Israel in recent days. Do you foresee an escalation?
20: For Hezbollah, there are two
0: factors
20: from their end in terms of an escalation. The first one is that they've built an alliance in the past few years. It's called the Unity of Front's Alliance. And that alliance entails if any of the, um, of the members of that um, alliance, whether Hamas, uh, the Islamic Jihad, others, are under kind of an ex- existential threat, that the organization step in and help and, and try to provide support militarily and join the war. So it's a kind of a, uh, a NATO for militant groups. And that would, at some stage, if Hamas is under an existential threat, Um, I would suppose that Hezbollah would find it difficult not to intervene, although uh, it remains um, a kind of a challenge given the cost of the conflict and what it means for Lebanon.
0: Well, let me follow up on all of that, because Israel and Hezbollah fought a war in 2006. There was no clear victor. Is Hezbollah's military strength much greater now?
20: Of course, Hezbollah has built um, many levels of deterrence and military power in the past um, 17 years, since the end of the 2006 conflict. On one hand, their uh, firepower is at a much higher level. They estimate about 150,000 uh, rockets. So their ability to launch missiles is at a much higher pace. Secondly, they have precision rockets, something like the cruise missile, which can target um, installations, uh, respond to the Israeli targeting of, of Lebanon's infrastructure, they can t- respond to that. And, and I think that would have um, a higher toll on the Israeli side um, than it had in 2006. And also Hezbollah has developed its drone capabilities in the past um, decade. Um, it's put them into use in, in Syria, and we've seen some use of that drone capabilities in southern Lebanon. They do have an advanced level of of that that is definitely at a higher level than Hamas's.
0: What you described could be a much more devastating conflict than anything we've seen so far.
20: Yes, of course. The Israeli assessment of Hezbollah's capabilities is whatever you've seen from Hamas is tenfold that. So definitely this will be a wider conflict and it will see uh, not only Hezbollah, but also other actors step in. Does
0: anyone in Lebanon have the stomach for more war while they're going through such a devastating economic collapse?
20: A definitive no here. And I think that's one of the considerations why Hezbollah has to think deeply before going to war. This is a country which has seen a devastating crisis since 2019. Um, The exchange rate has, has plummeted. The inflation is unprecedented levels. I mean, the the level of the crisis that Lebanon is going through now is as big as as basically anyone would have um, anticipated.
0: What about the possibility of of the war widening even more because, of course, uh, Iran's support of Hezbollah?
20: On one hand, Iran has built all of these uh, alliances and sponsorships of these groups and proxies just to avoid um, getting into a conflict itself. You know, to have a kind of a first line of defence rather than having to fight this this conflict in Tehran. so I I wouldn't suppose that Iran is ready uh, to join in and there's not much that Iran can contribute from a distance um, in such a um, in such a war.
0: Mohamed Hajali, senior fellow at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, thanks so much for being with us.
20: Thank you. Thank you.
0: The political opposition in Venezuela will hold a primary tomorrow to choose a candidate for next year's presidential election. The winner will take on Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's autocratic leader who's overseen an economic collapse that has sparked massive migration. Nearly eight million Venezuelans have fled their country. That amounts to the largest displacement crisis ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere. Reporter John Otis brings us the story of one Venezuelan family joining that exodus and heading to
6: the U.S.,
11: uh-huh.
6: Angel Marin is showing me his prized set of bongo drums that he must now get rid of. He's also selling his family's air conditioner and TV at steep discounts. So $300 for the air conditioner, and $80 for the uh, television. They need the money because they're abandoning their home in the western city of Maracaibo and, like millions before them, saying goodbye to Venezuela. Angel Matias. Angel Matias. Okay. Uh-huh. Muy bien. Cuántos años tienes tú? Angel, his wife Carolina, and their four-year-old son Matias don't want to leave.
15: Nos vamos a guardar aquí para comprar un carro. Mentira. O sea
6: but carolina says the normal aspirations of a young family such as buying a car or a home are impossible in today's venezuela instead they live in this cramped house with carolina's parents and brother angel's job at a mobile phone company barely covers the cost of food they'll sometimes eat just two meals per day sleeping late to avoid the urge for breakfast
11: I love you, Meanwhile,
6: young Matias has developed asthma. His medicine costs $32 a month, which the family can't afford. If I buy asthma medicine, Angel explains, then we won't be able to eat. That was the final indignity, the last straw prompting them to pack their bags. Their destination is St. Louis, where Carolina's sister has a job cleaning offices. Angel jokes that he'll need to work on his English.
11: Y el inglés, bueno, es eh, eh, slow, slow. Muy
6: lento. By contrast, Carolina's mother is in a somber mood now that her second daughter is about to leave Venezuela.
12: Me dan ganas de llorar.
6: It makes me want to cry, she says, because you always imagine having your family close by and watching your grandchildren grow up. Because they lack visas, Angel, Carolina, and Matias must travel overland through Central America and Mexico to get to the U.S. The trip will involve a tough 60-mile hike across the Darien Gap. That's a roadless patch of jungle between Colombia and Panama, where many migrants have been robbed, raped, and killed.
11: No queremos pasar la selva, de verdad, que nos asusta, nos da miedo.
6: We really don't want to go through the jungle, Ángel admits. It scares us. Besides unloading their TV and AC, they're selling Matías' baby clothes. Carolina wanted to save them for a second child, but a larger family now seems out of the question, and Carolina tears up as she folds the tiny bodysuits and pajamas. It's hard,
3: because we have to lo everything we have, but
6: this is really hard she says we have to sell the few things we own but It's for the best. At a downtown shopping mall, Angel and Carolina hand over the baby clothes to a man who pays them $40, which they promptly spend on flimsy backpacks for their journey. Before dropping them off back home, we drive past a huge mural of a smiling Nicolás Maduro. He's Venezuela's authoritarian president who has led the country into its worst economic crisis in history. I asked Carolina what she thinks of the
12: mural.
6: It makes us furious, she says. These people have destroyed Venezuela, and they're forcing us to leave our country. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Maracaibo, Venezuela. And now it's time for sports.
0: Baseball playoffs, Titan, Sin City, now Sports City, and welcome to the Tyson-Bagent era. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us.
15: You bet. Good morning.
0: Jose Altuve! Sorry, the Houston Astros <laughs> defeated the Texas Rangers 5-4, to four, uh, go up uh, three games to two in the American League Championship Series. Boy, Jose Altuve comes through when it counts, doesn't he?
15: oh yeah i mean the strohs got their october moment last night scott altuve hitting that go-ahead three-run homer top of the ninth and they take this one and boy this series is shaping up a lot like the 2019 nats astros world series where the home team just has not won a game yet uh but the astros you know they got the momentum now justin verlander said last night they find a way to get the right gear when it's necessary to do so, and yeah. they did yesterday. They just haven't played their best baseball at home, and now just one game away from another World Series, they need to find a way to win one at home because yeah. the next two are there.
0: Let me ask you about Arizona. Stunning comeback last night to defeat the Phillies 6-5, to and that evens the championship series to two games apiece. A lot of fans including me, wondered if it's a good idea uh, for baseball for a team like the D-backs with, uh, you know, a a middlingly successful record during the regular season to be in the playoffs at all. But they've uh, sure proven they belong, haven't they, I guess? Yeah,
15: you know, my colleague Jeff Passan made this point as the Phillies bullpen imploded spectacularly last night. Uh, You're right. Yeah, the Arizona Diamondbacks do not match up to Philadelphia Mm -hmm. in talent, in pedigree, in experience. And guess what? That doesn't make a darn bit of difference in October, Scott. The Diamondbacks are capitalizing here on that bullpen collapsing for Philly. And now we're tied up at two games apiece. Now, unlike the ALCS, the home team has won in each of the first four games. Now they stay in Arizona for one more and they head back east and if passed precedent is any indication, that's good news, I guess, for Philadelphia.
0: Las Vegas Aces repeated as WNBA championships uh, champions. Um, you know, pro sports used to shy away from Las Vegas, Sin City, gambling, sports betting. Now they can't get enough of it, can they? No, they
15: can't get enough of it because sports betting is illegal in a lot of states, and that's made Vegas a very attractive destination for leagues looking to expand, and you know, these Vegas politicians, they're happy to spend public money building these stadiums because they want to give the tourists another thing to do when they're on the strip. Now, to the team's credit, and really to local fans who are supporting these teams, uh, at least the Golden Knights and the Aces are making the most of the opportunity. They've won three championships in the last two seasons. The Raiders, Scott, it's a little bit of another story. They do have local support, of course, but- Yeah. Season not going great for them so far.
0: However, however, they can look forward to playing the Bears, <laughs> which is often all a team needs to have a comeback. But I find myself <laughs> utterly charmed by the story of the quarterback who's going to be in charge of the Bears offense, such as the Bears have an offense this week, Tyson Bagent. You wouldn't you wouldn't guess he'd ever wind up in the NFL, but here he is.
15: No, no. There's a reason. Uh, we don't know his name. Uh, Chicago's starting an unknown quarterback, uh, Tyson Bagent, just the fourth division two quarterback to start an NFL game, Scott, in the last 20 years. Now, it could be a storybook tale Sunday if if he can lead the Bears to the win. Now, Uh, I watched his press conference. He sounded relaxed. He sounded confident. He said the only other person who thought he could make it this far was his dad, good old dad, Travis Bajan. And I'm going to be looking out for him in the stands on Sunday because he's a 17-time arm wrestling champion from West Virginia. And I'm guessing he's going to be easy to spot. Just (laughs) one... Massive forearm
0: yeah, sticking it, out out there. It's a, it's a wonderful family story. Wish him wish him best whatever happens. So Michelle Steele of ESPN. Talk to you soon. Take care. See you, Scott. This is NPR News. P.J. Liederman does our theme music, but this theme might be the most recognizable one in all of sports. The Olympic fanfare and theme by John Williams. It stirs memories of the otherworldly speed of Usain Bolt, the grace and daring of Simone Biles, and, of course, the grit of Gronk. Count me in
6: already. Hopefully there's no trials <laughs> and they just accept me. But I'm um, I'm in. I'm going for that if, if there is flag football in the Olympics in 2028. USA going all the way. That's Rob
0: Gronkowski, the former NFL tight end, told TMZ Sports this week he's willing to play for Team USA flag football, a sport familiar in gym classes. It will be an Olympic sport at the 2028 Summer Games in Los Angeles. No tackling, no whacking, no smacking into each other. Players just try to pull one of the flags attached to the ball carrier's belt. It's not the kind of sport that can attract 100,000 fans into the Rose Bowl yet. But Coach Rob Dixon believes it could be.
23: Well, number one, it's exciting, right? It's fast. It's high-flying. It's fast-paced. It does require an elite level of game knowledge and, and football IQ. But additionally, it requires an extremely high level of athleticism.
0: Rob Dixon is the head coach of the girls' varsity flag football team at Frederick High School in Frederick, Maryland. The cadets are in the first season of a county pilot program funded in part by Under Armour and the NFL's Baltimore Ravens. The NFL's been a huge supporter of flag football, but this week's Olympic announcement stunned even Dixon's players like junior Lara Adioli, a middle linebacker. Our
3: coaches were just telling us that they were hoping that in a couple years that it'd be added to the Olympics. And now seeing that it didn't even take that long, it's just like a wow factor.
0: But Coach Dixon has been watching flag football grow. It's
23: at the youth level. It's at the high school level. NFL is sponsoring teams such as the Ravens. Thank you very much. They've done a great job with us. Um, Rec leagues, high schools now, um, summer, you know, AAU, USA flag. So. It's blowing up and it's worthy of the Olympic stage.
0: Squash will also be an Olympic sport for the first time in the 2028 games. <laughs> At least it's not pickleball. Cricket and lacrosse will return after more than a century. Think of the poor players who've been waiting for a 100 years. And sad news for those athletes mastering their head spins and polishing their baby swipes. In preparation for the Paris games next year, Breakdancing did not make the cut for the 2028 Summer Olympics, but hold on to those boomboxes and hope for Brisbane 2032. But at the end, All Things Considered, Colombian reggaeton star Maluma talks about how seriously he takes his music.
6: My homework is like, yo, how to be proud of being Colombian, how to be more proud of being Latino, how I'm gonna take my culture to another level, that we're pop, that we're fashion, that we're more than that, you know? That's part of my responsibility because I know that a bunch of people listen to my music and listen
0: to my words, actually, when I go on stage. You can tune in for that conversation with Maluma later today, live on your phone, a device called the radio, or your smart speaker. This is NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Anita Mann man who had five relatives in Israel abducted by Hamas says two of them have died. Jason Greenberg told NBC10 that 80-year-old Carmela Don and her 12-year-old granddaughter Noya Don were killed. He speculated that the two of them were, quote, slowing down Hamas. 19 people incarcerated at a maximum security prison have organized a hunger strike. The Boston Globe reports they submitted letters to Attorney General Andrea Campbell this week announcing the strike and requesting an investigation into one of the prison units. They say correctional officers at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Lancaster repeatedly assault them and use excessive force. A Department of Corrections spokesperson declined comment on the allegations to the globe. And this weekend is the 58th head of the Charles Regatta. 59 degrees at 940. Rain today and tonight. Sunshine tomorrow and Monday.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, Laurenholleran.com And Live Nation, presenting Lucinda Williams and her band on their Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets tour. Live at the Orpheum in Boston tonight, LiveNation.com.
16: As he urges Congress to fund both causes, President Biden is trying to tie a link between the war in Ukraine and the war between Israel and Hamas.
0: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate
16: it. We'll look at Russian President Vladimir Putin's support for Hamas and what's behind it on All Things Considered from NPR
8: News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories more at staples stores or staples.com from the walton family foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations more information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from listeners like you who donate to this npr station
0: this is weekend edition from npr news i'm scott simon An eight-year-old organization founded to try to bridge the divide between Palestinians and Israelis has been encountering trouble since the Hamas attack earlier this month. The group Standing Together said two of its members were arrested when they tried to put up stickers with a message of unity, and it has canceled some gatherings because of resistance to its message. We spoke with two of its members earlier this week, Salih Abed in Haifa, and a lonely green in Tel Aviv. They are both Israeli. Sally Abed is also Palestinian. She and other members of Standing Together have been trying to figure out what to do at this moment.
22: After the aftershock, uh, you know, (laughs) what we are trying to do is uh, really understand what can we actually control right now. I think we got to a point where we really felt like everything is out of control. Uh, Everything is just... Escalating so quickly and so dangerously, and uh, we thought that we have control over our communities, and uh, we just tried to really understand how we can strengthen those communities. Um, and we built a network of uh, Solidarity Watch, uh, who provide uh, support for the thousands of people that are part of the movement and uh, the people around them and their communities.
0: How how would and I will note, we are speaking now on a, on a Thursday afternoon in the United States. How would people in standing together hope the Israeli government might respond to the attacks of October 7th?
18: Well, that's a very complicated question because of course, the entire membership of standing together are shocked. And from this shock, we see a lot of, of anger and a lot of uh, feelings of revenge. and. We do understand these feelings, but we do say in the clearest way possible, more killing of innocent people, more bloodshed, more feeding of this vicious circle of death and blood will not bring back anyone uh, to life. And more than that, it will not bring back the 200 Israelis that are held, captured, and that are alive. Um, And we're saying to our government, work on the life. Talk to us about the ones that are still alive. Talk to us about us, the ones that are still living here and suffering from from this in in this moment. Try and not to just promise us more death and revenge and blood and and destruction. But unfortunately, that's all that we hear from our government.
0: Sally Abed, what would your vision be for Israel, Gaza, and Palestine? I don't know what it would look
22: like. I don't think I want to draw on maps on my ideal vision where I am as a Palestinian. I do think that the occupation needs to end. (laughs) That's a necessary step. For at least two decades, we see that the Israeli government has had zero intentions and zero efforts to do that. And uh, we see that from the other side too. But You know, the Israeli government happens to be the government that I live under. So I'm talking to that government.
0: Let me ask a question that's often raised about uh, standing together in other groups. Would would your group be possible in Gaza?
18: Do we want to be Gaza ourselves? Do we want to be under the control of a fascist and racist, homophobic organization and, and murderous organization like Hamas? I do not want to live like this. I live under a government which is bad enough already, a government that controls millions of people and does not give them the right to vote, does not give them the right to move freely, does not give them the right for independence or freedom. I'm also a gay person in Israel. I cannot marry in my own country. I cannot bring children in my own country. It's worse enough to live under my my government than to wish that we will live under Hamas. No one wishes to live under Hamas, believe me.
22: I also don't like this kind of comparison and this kind of like justification, like you have it good enough. Like it's almost becoming like it's impossible for us to exist here either. And people don't realize that. Our activists went in Jerusalem, you know, they confiscated our t-shirts because they had Arabic on it it's a bilingual you know and they confiscated our t-shirts they find us on every single poster that we had that said we will go through this together but because it was bilingual you know people are being fired from schools from universities from their work because they empathized with Gazan children I don't want to be under the rule of Hamas. And let me tell you something. Most of Gazans don't want to be under the rule of Hamas.
0: I feel blessed to have been in, in Israel and the West Bank 30 years ago on the day that they signed the Oslo Accords. And I remember at that point speaking with both many Israelis and many Palestinians who said, well, there you know something imperfect about the agreement. But look, We're just tired of all this fighting. People have suffered enough. we got to stop." And that was 30 years ago. I mean, I left Jerusalem, I was so happy. I thought, well, the world has solved this. What happened?
18: I was born just a a day before the First Intifada started, and I had my bar mitzvah just two days after the Second Intifada started. And I was already above 18. During all the wars of the 2000s, I think we deserve much better. They have done nothing in the Israeli government, in my leadership. You know, among the people that I expect to lead me towards, you know, a, a safe place, they've done nothing to even talk to the president of the Palestinian people since 2014. So when there's no peace, I guess war comes.
22: I was just today, uh, my parents uh, came here and my mom told me, um, you don't remember, you were three. I was three uh, at Oslo. She told me it was just so different. Everyone was just nicer. People really, really wanted peace. And she was almost like griefing those days. She's like, look where we are now. I, I really don't want to think that we needed to endure such loss, you know, such atrocities here in Israel. But maybe now, uh, I really hope uh, that from this dark corner, uh, we can have like this shift in the paradigm on how we actually look at these wars and, and how actually we look at the Israeli control over Gaza and over the West Bank and really have a different outlook on what our
0: leadership actually should look like. Sally Abed and Elon Green, part of the group, standing together. Thank you both very much for speaking with us.
22: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. The new novel, Julia, is double plus good. As you might say in newspeak, the language developed more than seven decades ago by George Orwell for his classic novel, 1984. American writer Sandra Newman, with approval from the Orwell estate, has retold and extended the original dystopian society the Big Brother, Telescreens, Room 101, and the Ministries of Peace, Plenty, and of Truth, which is anything but... For her story, Sandra Newman presents 1984 through the eyes of Julia Worthing, the love of Orwell's main character, Winston Smith. Sandra Newman joins us now from London. Thank you so much for being with us.
21: Oh, Thank you, Scott.
0: I'd like you to uh, read from the book, if we could, and bring us back into that original nightmare society in Oceana. uh, Airstrip One used to be London for a uh, two-minute hate break in the workday.
21: In the final seconds, Big Brother's face faded and was replaced by the three core party slogans, written in thick black letters on red. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Then the telescreen blanked out and left the watchers facing their own dim reflections. They began the chant. B, 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 B. It started out uncoordinated and messy, but soon settled into a slow, sure beat. Those who were still sitting rose to their feet, some stamped along or drummed on the backs of chairs. This part of the ritual was always a release. Everyone relaxed and beamed. Another thought had been correctly thought, another feeling rightly felt. One saw how little the party asked, after all. You needn't know all the latest newspeak words— struggled to believe contradictory things. If you hated the enemy, you could be loved. People smiled dopeily at each other, and some eyes welled with tears. They had had a good hate.
0: BB, of course, Big Brother. and It's, it's hard not to read that section these days and not uh, think of social media platforms today. <laughs> I wonder if that was on yeah. your mind.
21: It was very much on my mind. But when I began the book, I was very much addicted to Twitter. It's strange. You're very much affected by it, I think. I think anybody who was addicted to Twitter would say that there was nothing good about the experience by the end, and yet you would keep going back and find it hard to stop. And Part of the writing of this book was trying to understand that and investigate it and talking about what actually happens when you become addicted to something, which is an experience of group hate.
0: Julia, uh, of course, is uh, at the center of the novel. Uh, She's a mechanic, uh, but her first job at the Ministry of Truth is uh, helping to produce porn. Some striking titles she came up with.
21: There was one review where they gave me credit for coming up with that, but it's actually in the Orwell. He has her working at Pornosec as her first job, but he doesn't say anything about the pornographic novels that she's working on. So the the titles I came up with... one of them is spanking stories, which is Winston's favorite. And the other one, which she likes, is inner party sinners. My telescreen is broken, comrade. So so that was really fun. Like actually Orwell has so many things that he mentions which feel really fun, but because he's not writing a book that can in any way be fun, he doesn't pursue them. And I gave myself permission to be a little more fun and I did pursue I went down all of those little alleyways and down the rabbit holes.
0: When you uh, when you take on a project like this, what do you what do you appreciate about the original all over again?
21: Oh, so much the his understanding of the psychology of totalitarianism was so astonishing. Both the psychology of the totalitarians and the psychology of their victims and the mm-hmm. psychology of the people who the ordinary like members of the party who are one day denouncers and the next day the denounced who are forced to play the game of denouncing in order to put off the day when they will be denounced the fear of that and the anger that comes from the fear the feeling of saying things that you don't believe inspired by fear but having to look anything but frightened in order to not <laughs> bring down the hammer on yourself like everything about it he he described it so beautifully and so intelligently and with such Real passion—it moved me every time.
0: You bring us into Julian's living situation, which sounds uh, sounds pretty grim.
21: Yeah, it's interesting that she lives in a in a women's hostel with thirty other women, and in some ways it is grim, and in some ways it's a community. She finds comfort from being with the other women and talking to them, but it's also inevitably a treacherous situation because any of them could denounce her. In the dormitory, there are telescreens everywhere, and the telescreens are always on, so you hear big brother's voice droning at you as you sleep. But she's so used to that that she can't sleep without it. So it's interesting. I think one of the things I was trying to get at in my book, which Orwell either didn't want to talk about or didn't have time for in his book, was how totalitarianism can also be your home if it's all you've ever known.
0: What's Oceana's Art Sim program?
21: The Arts and program, which also is something Orwell came up with, but then didn't really pursue very far, is artificial insemination. So the party in 1984 is very much against sex and, and generally human relationships.
0: Because they uh, they subvert the relationship with the party. Is that the whole idea?
21: Yes. Every ounce of emotion that you have should be devoted to the party, to hating the party's enemies, to loving Big Brother, and to working for the good of the party. So if you love your wife or your husband, that interferes with that. They want to stamp that out, but they still need new comrades to be born. So the answer is artificial insemination. And this is a way for party women to serve the party fully. It seemed obvious to me that if you're a person like Julia, who in both of the books has a lot of affairs with men, but you don't have any access to birth control, which couldn't really exist in this world, Artificial insemination would also be a way to cover up for an unwanted pregnancy.
0: What was it like for you to, to spend all this time in that society?
21: It was not the easiest couple, two years of my life. I would be working on this book and immersing myself in the society, and then I would pause and go and look at the news, and there was always a new totalitarian, either taking power or consolidating power or doing something with that power that was terrifying. And um, my husband, I would be talking to him and I would see a certain look across his face and I would realize that yet again, I was talking about Stalin or totalitarianism and I would have to check myself and think, how do I lighten up in this situation? How How do I remember that there is hope? Like a lot of the process of this book for me was trying to find sources of hope.
0: And where are they? Where are those sources of hope? Not a bad question these days.
21: If you ask Orwell, or the Orwell of 1984, the key source of hope is in human relationships, that very thing that the party is trying to stamp out. Winston finds hope by loving Julia, by trusting Julia, even if it doesn't make sense to trust her. And even though they betray each other, that's a kind of a triumph. And you, you feel that in 1984, even though it ends in absolute hopelessness for Winston, it doesn't end in absolute hopelessness for the human race.
0: Sandra Newman's new novel derived from George Orwell's 1984, Julia. Thank you so much for being with us.
21: Thank you, Scott.
0: This is weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from the Langloth Foundation, Supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR, where Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next. 59 degrees at 958 rain today and tonight.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Stepping Stone, for more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities, starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at SteppingStone.org.
19: The latest on the war in Israel and the Palestinian territories, from what's happening on the ground to how it's affecting friendships here at home. Also, same-sex marriage in India, House Republicans and their struggle to get their house in order, as well as new fiction, a new film, great new music, and the puzzle. It's all the news and so much more Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News.
8: Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR.
4: I'm here and now host, Deepa Fernandes, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 Way tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.